You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2. Peace be with you. Uh, good morning, good morning, good morning. My name is James Fields. I serve here as the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. And it is deep with great joy and privilege that I greet you this glorious morning. We want to welcome you to Church on the Lawn, the inside edition, as we continue our core value of missionality by studying the book of Genesis. This morning, we'll slow down our sermon series entitled Missio Dei, which in Latin means Mission of God. And we'll simply just look at one verse this morning, Genesis 2. 15. So if you're physically able, would you stand with us for the hearing of God's word this morning? Listen to God's word. Genesis 2, 15 says these words. Then the Lord took the man, placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So riddle me this, what am I? We're all impacted by it. We're all influenced by it. We all do it to some degree, some lesser and then some greater. It has enough capacity for a millionaire to participate within it and just as much capacity for a two-year-old to participate in it as well. There are no clear boundaries to when and where you do this. Some like to do it away from home. And since 2020, many of us have constructed creative ways to do this. Some in our kitchen, some do this in their, on their balcony, and even some of them, us do it maybe even in their bedroom. The more you do this, the more successful you're seen or you're deemed to be. It is often seen as being the most important thing that defines you, who you are, and how you're viewed within society is closely connected to this. What am I? So you might want to guess. Work. Yes, absolutely. Work. You see, for the past couple of weeks, we've been trying to identify the Missio Day of God within the first couple of chapters in Genesis, specifically looking at Genesis 1 and 2. And thus far, we've discovered the following. We've discovered that God has created us and he's created all things. We've discovered that he's made us dependent upon him. We've discovered that he made us in his image and according to his likeness. We've discovered that last week that he's created us for relationships and not to be alone. We also have learned through Pastor Nick and Dr. Allison's teachings that he's made us for a purpose or as Pastor Nick instructed us, he's created us with a telios or telos. 
Today, we're going to take a look, closer look at this function as we look at God's intention for work. And we're going to look at three aspects of, of work by looking at three different questions. The first question is this. Why, uh, excuse me, how should we view the opportunity to work or why should we work within God's created order? Secondly, we're going to look at um, why, how do we serve within God's created order? And then thirdly, we're going to look at what's God's intention for us regarding with work and vocation. Would you pray with me as we prepare to share from God's word this morning? Father, we do thank you. We love you. We ask God that you would be with us and you would help us, Lord, to understand this aspect of work that you've given us. Pray that you would reshape and redefine this aspect and concept of work. Help us, Lord, to understand completely and holistically what it means to be invited into the beauty of work each and every day of our lives. And help us, Lord, to acknowledge the finished work that Christ has done on our behalf, most importantly, at the cross of Calvary. May that work motivate every other work that we do. God, as always, hide me behind your cross. Take the little I have and make much of it. Glorify yourself as only you can. Amen. Amen. So today, instead of looking at a verse-by-verse analysis within the scriptures, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a topic, and we're going to look at it more in a thematic way. So we're looking at the topic of work from a biblical and theological perspective. Now, don't worry. Next week, I have two parts of the same verse. So next week, we're going to try to land the plane with some practicalities and kind of some how-tos. But this week, we want to kind of have an overarching kind of meta view of this aspect of work. And I want to start off with this question. Why is work important? Or to put it another way, what's the purpose of work? You see, in America, we tend to believe that that which is spiritual or sacred occupies a separate sphere from that which, is, that which is mundane or secular. This view is often called dualism. And dualism is the bifurcation of reality into the spiritual and the material. It is inherently anti-biblical, and it's an import of Greek philosophy particularly the dualistic worldview of Plato. In essence, Plato taught that the material world was merely a shadow. It was a shadow of the spiritual world and therefore of less substance and value than the spiritual realm. In other words, Plato believed that the spiritual realm was true reality. And therefore, our soul, that part of us which Plato associates with the spiritual, seeks to escape its imprisonment from in our physical and material bodies. You know, sadly, dualism has had a major influence on early Christian thought, namely the clear bifurcation between the clergy and even laity. Hence, as early as the Middle Ages, the influence of dualism has caused a, a strict distinction from the clergy or the so-called full-time worker, Christian workers like monks, priests, and Bible scholars, and the laity, 
faithful Christian men and men who have often done or simply do secular jobs from time to time. However, a sharp, a marked shift took place during the Reformation when theologians uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin began to revisit the Bible's teaching on work. Consequently, Luther and others began to explicitly reject the clergy-laity divide and thereby recast the role of the clergy as being the equipping of the laity for the work of ministry. For many of us in our church, that should sound familiar because Ephesians 4.12 says that, that we are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You see, within the laity's unique sphere of influence and labor, this doctrine became known as the priesthood of all believers. So let's look at our first aspect of work that I mentioned earlier. Why should we work within God's created order? In order to answer this question, we actually have to go back. So let's go back to Genesis 2, verses 7 through 10 for the answer. You remember these words that God spoke to us? In scripture, he says, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living soul. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out of Eden to water the garden. Notice with me in this very verse that work was initiated by God, not by man. Notice what Genesis 2, 7 through 10 talks about God. God formed the man from the dust of the ground. God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. God planted a garden in Eden. God placed the man he had formed into the garden. And lastly, we see that God calls to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance. It's a good reminder for us, as we often say in our church, that we work because God is at work. I love this because God doesn't simply tell us to be a part of something that he's not already a part of. God's not the type of teacher who will give you a pop quiz on something that he never has taught you or shown you. Our God is a kind God. He's a good God, and he models for us the things that he requires of us in every detail of our life. As we said last week, that God never reacts. He is always proactive. So from the very beginning, why should we work within God's created creation? We should work because God is at work, because God initiated the beauty of work, the sanctity of work. Notice what even he says, Paul says about this in Ephesians 2.10. Remember this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand or ahead of time for us to walk therein. That God has prepared works for you as a believer, as a brother and sister in Jesus Christ, God has prepared works for you beforehand for you to walk therein. 
You don't have to try to earn a position with God. You don't have to try to get him to like you or love you. Just because you're having a bad day doesn't mean that God has forgotten about you. What Ephesians 2 reminds us of is the beauty that what God has created, he also can sustain. It reminds us that God prepares for us even before he saves us. So why should we work within God's created order? We should work with a grateful heart of gratitude, seeing work as a gift and an invitation from God to join him into the work that he's already been that he's already been doing and the work that's already been initiated by him. Love how Colossians 3.17 says it. He says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, not only has God initiated work, but he's also called us to model him as a worker. So let's look at our second aspect of work. How should we work within God's created order? Look with me to Genesis 2.15 for the answer. Listen to the word of Christ. It says, the, word, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work and watch over it. Other translations say not just work, but he put him there to care for or to serve, to watch or to tend and to cultivate over it. But notice with me here in verse 15, it says quite clearly that the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden. You see, this Hebrew Hebrew word here, designated as place, literally means cause to rest. So when God takes the man, he places him in the garden to rest. Sounds very familiar to the identity in the resume of our God, doesn't it? Remember how David describes God in Psalm 23? He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's a beautiful reminder for us that when God is at work and when God calls us Adam to be placed in the garden to work. He didn't put him in there as a place of punishment, but a place of delight. He put him there in order to know what it means to rest in the knowledge that God is in control of all things. I love this because God places Adam into rest so that his work might glorify God and not himself. Do you know what that's the very essence of what it means to to rest in God? To rest in God doesn't mean that you sit at home and you binge watch Netflix for 18 hours. It doesn't mean that you have uh, all these bags of Cheetos all around you and playing PlayStation and doing those things. This aspect of rest is similar to what God does for Adam here in Genesis 2.15. God places Adam into rest so that his work might glorify God 
and not himself. To be in a place of rest with God is not trying to earn God's approval. It's not trying to earn God's favor. It's resting from a place of acceptance and love that God has already placed on you because of his son Jesus and allowing your work to flow out of that rest. So how about you? Are you working from a place of rest? Are you working from a place of identity, knowing who you are as a son and daughter of the most high God? As we say here often, our identity precedes our function. That who we are is so much important than simply what we do. That God desires for us to allow him to place us in the place of rest so that the work that we do will not be a means by which God loves us, but it will be a means by which we seek to honor and glorify God. Listen to me. This is transformative. (laughs) I know it's simple, but it's transformative. Church of God, if we could just learn how to rest where God has placed us. If we could just learn how to delight in the place that God has given us, we can learn to just give up the relentless effort to try to persuade God to like us or love us by what we do and simply be reminded that we are loved because he loves us. We are accepted because of the blood of Christ. We are adored and adopted because work that was done 2,000 years ago on a hill called Golgotha. Church family, may our rest come from that place and that alone. So you may be asking me, Pastor Fields, what's the difference between working from a place of rest and and working from a place of restlessness? You see, in Genesis, we see God working to create a world within which he himself will co-labor with humanity. He's called us to co-labor with him. I love at the Harbor Network, one of the speakers, I don't remember exactly who said this, but I would definitely give him the credit, but it wasn't me. But at the Harbor Network, some speaker was saying that, listen, either we are working We are working for God or we're working with God. (laughs) And it's such a good reminder, isn't it? Right? Either we're working for God, right? For his approval or we're working with him. And the reason why we're stopping the narrative in Genesis and the reason why we're revisiting this place of work and vocation is because we want to invite you, if you have been working for God, we are inviting you to learn how to work with him. You know, working with God is not easy because working with God takes humility. Working with God takes takes opportunities when you are frustrated and you are at your wit's end and you don't have a solution. It takes a humble heart to before God and say, God, I don't know what I'm doing. God, I can't do this any longer. God, I am frustrated. I have done all that I can do. I need your help. Father, I've been 
loving this child in every way that I can, but they continue to be defiant. I have pursued my spouse in every way that I can, but she, he or she still have grievances uh, against me. I've tried to pursue that family member. I've tried to be like Jesus, but it, it just seems like it's not working. God, I need your help. Sometimes what God is waiting for is not just your strength to get through something, Oftentimes, what God is waiting for is your admittance that you can't get through it without him. That, God, I need you. I invite you into spaces that I have reluctantly stiff-armed you from. I now invite you in, Father. I ask that you would do more than, more than I could ask or think in this situation. I ask that you would redeem, you would restore, and you would provide. Love what D.H. Jensen says in his book, Responsive Labor, A Theology of Work. It is said, he says, his biblical narratives overflow with work between the opening lines of Genesis, which portray God as a worker and closing chapter of Revelation with the vision of new creation. God labors. One of the distinguishing characteristics of biblical faith is that God does not sit enthroned in heaven removed from work, willing things into existence by divine fiat. Unlike the gods of the Greco-Roman mythologies who absolve themselves of work, dining on nectar and ambrosia in heavenly rest and contemplation, the biblical God works. Again, it's a good reminder for us that we're invited to work Because our God is a worker. I love how Psalm 36 puts it, 5 and 9. It says, Lord, your faithful love reaches to heaven, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your judgments like the deepest sea. Lord, you preserve people and animals. How priceless your faithful love is, God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They are filled from the abundance of your house. You let them drink from your refreshing stream. From the the wellspring of life is with you. By means of your light, we see light. See, as a created being in the image of God, Adam, like God, was to be a worker. And that introduces us to the third aspect of work. What's God's intentions of us regarding our work and our vocation? Go back with me and review with me Genesis 1, 26 and 31 for the answer. Listen to the, script, listen to the word of Christ through the scriptures of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So what does God mean when he says that man is created in the image of God? You see, most people think of the image of God as primarily explaining what sort of being we are. A fancy word of saying that is our ontology. 
In this understanding, to say we are made in the image of God is to say we are creatures uniquely capable of complex reasoning and relationships. And while some ontological truth embedded in the notion of the image of God, the idea is actually best understood within its ancient Near East context. You see, in the ancient Near East, when a king would conquer a neighboring territory, he would leave some sort of image in that place to represent his rule in his stead. This could be like a temple or a building. A king would come and and construct a temple or a building in a conquered land to remind them that they are now part of a new kingdom. A king would not only just build a temple or a building, he would also build a statue, maybe of himself or some other god. Lastly, a king might even have a personal assistant, a governor, someone to be there in his place to make decisions on behalf of his rule and his dominion. You see, all these things were basically categorized as images of the conquering nation and his king. And it represented the king who himself was not physically present in the conquered kingdom, but it was deeply related to him in some way, although he was no longer there. You see, in a similar way, given the biblical notion that humanity is made in the image of God, we can conclude that we are to represent the rule of God in this world in his physical absence from it. Not that God is physically absent from, not that God is absent from it, but he has left us as his church in order to continue to expand his glorious kingdom. To put it another way, we are created to be and to act as if God would be in an act if he were visibly and physically pleasant, present in the world today. God has called us to be what the fancy word here is vice regents. We are called to image the one, our king, on this earth despite his physical absence at this moment. Notice what Psalm 8 says about God. It says about man. It says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, the image of God is therefore primarily a functional definition, what we are created to do rather than an ontological definition, what sort of being we are of humanity. What we are created to do is to image God and to reflect his goodness in this world. Like what Scott Haferman has to say about this in the the God of promise and the life of faith. He says this, mankind is the one creature who is to relate directly to God in conscious dependence. God speaks commands directly to humanity and to reflect this relationship by exercising a godly rule over the world. Adam names the animals. To be in the image of God thus means that mankind represent God 
so that man does what man does is what God himself would do if he ruled the world directly. And we know that now if it's a if he ruled the world, but God is ruling the world directly. How is he ruling the world? He's ruling the world through his image barriers, bearers. So if we are called to be vice regents, how do we do that if we're no longer in Eden? How do we do this? How do we make this to be true? Well, look with me again. In Genesis 128, it says these words, God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Notice here that God commissions us to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. This is another fancy term that is often called the cultural mandate of God. And that God has given us as human beings, his image bearers, the rule and authority to make more out of what is provided. In other words, God is saying, take the raw materials that I provided you with and make something of this world. Love this because although Adam is explicitly told, even commanded by God, to make something greater than the sum of the parts of Eden. God calls us, and just as God called Adam to do the same thing, to take the raw materials, to, to take something and make, to take what, he, what has been given to him and make something greater, God has also called us to do the same in our own very lives. Listen to G.K. Chesterton in his book, The Nightmare Goodness of God. He says these words. He says, God did not give us a universe, but rather the materials of a universe. The world is not a picture. It is a palette. God gave man a paint box. He gave him the crude materials of something, the cruel, crude materials of everything. Notice with me here that Eden was not a finished product. <laughs> that Eden was not a finished product. And redemptive history will culminate with a similar image. Not a return to Eden, but rather the coming of a garden city to which the progress of human culture contributes. Notice how Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4 speaks of this reality. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. I love this because it reminds us of the fact that our work will have eternal value. That the things that we put our hands to the things that make sweat comes across our brow, the frustrations of this world are not just for this world, but they ultimately will be redeemed by the very presence of God and his second coming and bringing the new heavens and the new earth for our enjoyment. 
There's three things I want to just leave with us today as we conclude. Three points of application that I want us to remember as we leave today and we, we come back to this verse next week. Number one, God initiated work from the very beginning. Therefore, work is not evil. Work is not evil. We'll elaborate on this more next week. Number two, God is a ruthless and relentless worker. Therefore, work is both beneficiary, is beneficial as well as necessary. And then number three, God invites us to work alongside him. Our work glorifies our God. Will you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we, we do thank you that you call us to be a part of the work that you initiated from the very beginning. I thank you, God, that you don't call us to do something that you yourself are not willing to do. You call us to something that you yourself are willing to model for us. God, we thank you for the gift of work. Lord, help us to not just work for you, but to work with you. God, help us to invite you into places in work where our work is tedious and hard, where it's cumbersome and maybe even overbearing. God, may we not just complain about those things, but would you give us the humility of heart, the grace, the grace to be able to turn to you in our weakness and our frustration and ask for help. And God, I pray that you will be a God who would respond quickly to the cries of your children even this week. Help us in our weakness, God. God, we are weak and we are frail and we need your help. We are not an end to ourselves. Forgive us of where we have believed that we are an ends unto ourselves. Father, I pray that this week, especially that you would bless the work of our hands, that you would establish your work in the hearts and the productivity of your people. And I pray that that work and the finished product will bring much glory to your name. Thank you for allowing us to pause and reflect on this aspect of work even right now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.